Hi, I'm August. I'm Afi. I'm Jessica. And I'm Carl. Welcome to The Periphery. We are so excited to have you back for this very interesting conversation that we're having today. I think today's topic kind of came out of left field. Um, when we were thinking about the podcast and the kind of content we would produce on the podcast, I don't think any of us, and correct me if I'm wrong, anticipated that we would be talking about religion, spirituality, and its interplay with artificial intelligence. But here we are. And um, we came across this topic really um, through a very interesting article in the New York Times, uh, written by Linda Kinsler. And beyond the uh, fun animations in this article, I think we were struck also just by the title, which was, Can Silicon Valley Find God? Before we delve into our interview today, um, I just love to ask my co-hosts, one, does Silicon Valley already have a God? What are, if there are any, some quasi-religious beliefs that Silicon Valley already has? And secondly, if the answer is no, can Silicon Valley find God? Oh no, not the two-part question. <laughs> uh, such a law student. Uh, it really, honestly, the articles made me start thinking about, uh, or why it felt like we had it in this episode was the article highlighted how Silicon Valley has its whatever claims or whatever secularity that kind of pervades in this uh, region. Silicon Valley kind of believes a lot in tech, almost dogmatically. Uh, we kind of believe that tech can save us from climate change. We believe that tech can, you know, get us to Mars. Um, August somewhat believes that we can live forever from it. Somewhat. <laughs> August is a disciple of that religion. All right. Well, August, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, I certainly agree with my co-hosts that there are interesting parallels in tech that bring that give us religious vibes that um <laughs> and that there are, there are dimensions in technology itself the way that we treat technology and give it authority that again kind of remind us of religious authority mm -hmm. um now yes i've been interested in the science of, <laughs> well biogerontology is the study of uh uh old age and, and life extension and uh when i was younger i um became kind of like many people actually How i'm not alone in this Oh, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, <laughs> I I had a lot of um, I was fascinated by the idea that quarter that, life crisis really is that, different. <laughs> Maybe not even quarter life. <laughs> well, hopefully not. I mean, that depends on how long I'll live, I guess. Uh, hopefully it wouldn't be a quarter life crisis. It would just be only a small fraction, a, a tenth, a one percent life crisis. But the point was that the possibilities of uh, biotechnology enabled us to look at death not as an inevitability, but as a disease that can be cured. Mm -hmm. And um, that reframing was really inspiring for me, mostly because I'm really scared of death. And I, I channeled that anxiety over, um, over death uh, by trusting in technology, mm -hmm. by having this intense faith in, um, in, in the ability eventually of science and, and technology to alter fundamental parts of human life. To bail you out, basically. Well, to... To transform society, because all of society is is structured around the fact that we have a rough timeline of how long we're going to live. Yeah. And um, it's that kind of deep uh, faith in, in the power of technology and science to improve human lives in, in radical ways 
that actually was almost religious for me. And in fact, it was uh, it, it, that in, in itself, the, the solution to death was a direct replacement to one of religion's core functions. Yeah, I think like the question, can Silicon Valley find God, I think is kind of a problematic question because I think like, I think a search for faith is extremely personal and individualized. So like, even though people talk about how Silicon Valley is a monoculture, like individuals work in Silicon Valley and they, they might like have one face that they bring to work and they might not talk about their spiritual beliefs, but like, obviously everyone has different beliefs about these things. I think like the interesting question is the technology that we're building when we think about artificial intelligence, like presumably is going to be somewhat like a human, right? Like that's the goal. So like, what will this artificial intelligence believe? Will our artificial intelligence find God? Will it be God? Will it consider itself God? I think those are the really interesting questions. You're right, Jess. And I think the the tools that we're building now, um, I mean, in some ways, if you're looking at it from a historical perspective, like if you showed the kind of capabilities we have now with an iPhone to someone who was living 2,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, yeah. it would look like magic. It would look godlike. And so with that kind of power, of course, like comes the question, well, how do we use that power ethically? And I think what's interesting about, I think, the conversation that we're having today is that different religions and spiritual traditions can be part of that conversation. You know, when uh, another story from my past, if you'll indulge me, um, is uh, I became also very interested kind of around the times I was asking these morbid death questions um, about the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is basically in, uh, a, a paradox that if God... Uh, the Odyssey. Yes, exactly. Uh, this, uh, the Odyssey is uh, if God is three things, omnipresent, all-knowing or omniscient, uh, and um, all-good, omnibenevolent, then logically evil is an impossibility. Yeah. And I'm thinking now about comparing that with artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence systems that I think right now are approaching omnipresence. They're, they're everywhere. They're in every part of our lives and the way that we consume things and get services. Um, and they're, 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 they seem to be at least trying to be all-knowing. Uh, AI can produce knowledge that no human mind could, uh, could create or fathom. Um, the question is, is it all good? You know, I think that um, there's a serious problem with our kind of religious mentalities of, of looking at a being that can be all good, all knowing and all present um, and then uh, directly applying those to AI without without some actual understanding of the way that these work. Or, or again, the people with their own motivations and morals um, who, 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 who structure the way that this technology behaves. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Jess, like, you know, despite, you know, the monoculture stereotype, there are values in Silicon Valley that are being embedded in our technology that are affecting um, how we perceive our values, how we understand our values, how we engage with people who don't have the same values with us or same spiritualities. At a time where technology can seem like it connects us, uh, it can also really divide us uh, based on how merely just the technology is designed. Uh, and to your point, August, we're learning more about is it all good? Uh, sometimes it can be. And that's like basically the conversation uh, that we have today with Shannon Botcher, uh, who we came across uh, from the New York Times article, who's doing research 
along these lines. He used to be a technologist in Silicon Valley. He was a, gen- a product manager, a general manager at Microsoft. And now he's <laughs> maybe kind of like us, un- uh, surprisingly or whimsically, doing research on spirituality and AI and how it's affecting us, how it's affecting how we perceive our beliefs, how we're understanding them. Um, and the conversation honestly really took a, a turn to, or at least the conversation left me realizing how AI can be applied legitimately in incredibly profound ways that do connect us and do consensus build uniquely by replacing humans. Uh, <laughs> I think there are ways that uh, faith or spiritual life can make humans more humane, uh, compassionate, and better. And I think that a big question that we're going to ask Shannon, or at least that we're going to try to figure out is, can it also make AI better? Can it, can it make them more humane decision makers? Can we create human-centered AI using the lessons derived from faith? Hi, Shannon, and uh, welcome to The Periphery. It's great to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, We've been really excited for this interview and to talk about this subject in general, which is very different for us uh, from the other episodes that we've done so far, And um, but also just really captures a lot of what we think our podcast is about and what drove us. So I I guess we want to start off with just telling us a little bit about yourself and and your research and your work. Great. Yeah. uh, Happy to do that. Um, So... Back in 2016, I retired from a career in technology, uh, worked in Silicon Valley and up here at Microsoft for a, a very long time on a lot of uh, mainstream communications products, productivity products, uh, lots of lots of products that people have used. Um, I'm sure you've all used every day. Um, at that time, I left my career and uh, wanted to focus on my academic interests, um, which had to do with spirituality and religion and how are people uh, grappling with that in, uh, in our modern times. And um, then just a few years ago, I made a proposal uh, for a PhD program at uh, St. Andrews um, to study the intersection of artificial intelligence and spirituality. And really the core uh, focus of that research has to do with the ability for that technology to potentially help us, potentially influence us, um, and uh, you know, and, and the potential for uh, manipulation or maybe even a little bit of a darker side. But uh, started with the idea um, kind of, you know, just uh, sitting around uh, the dinner table with my kids. We were kind of joking and they they wanted to ask Alexa what would happen uh, when you die and what she might say. And it sort of just started a, a spark in my mind about I wonder what I wonder what she will say someday. I wonder what these systems will do with highly personal, highly uh, important information and and how will people interact with it? I've heard a lot about actually, um, and this was partly in the a very interesting New York Times article about Silicon Valley and religion. Uh, that's how we found you and that's how we found this topic. Um, but there's been a lot of talk about digital churches or digital religious communities, the social aspects of religion moving online. and uh, And I'm also curious about um, that desire to just ask Alexa about spiritual questions. Do people want to 
merge their religious and digital lives? And what do you think is driving that that desire? Well, you know, I think it's it, that's part of what I was looking at, you know, in, in the study. And yeah, Linda Kinsler, who wrote the article in The New York Times, she was actually a participant in my research and, uh, you know, shared some of her experience, you know, with it. Um, one of the the sort of overarching phenomenon is is this idea of of dechurching or sort of the rise of the nuns, the the uh, N O N E uh, and you know the nuns, the the non-religious people. Um, you know, uh, the U.S. used to be one of the most religious uh, countries in the world. You know, close to ninety percent of people um, so they were affiliated with you know with some type of religion. You know, close to three quarters of those people were. Uh, you know, identified as Christians. Um, and, you know, what we've seen over the last uh, several decades is um, a decline in uh, people, you know, talking about their religious affiliation. And so now, you know, some of the latest research out of uh, Pew and, and, and others, you know, shows that, you know, teenagers today, uh, uh, it's about 50-50 in terms of what um, they say in terms of I'm, you know, part of a religious organization or a religious group. And, um, you know, so then the question arises, well, you know, what about the sort of core existential questions that, that, that are part of the human experience? How do people answer those? How do they answer them for themselves? How will they answer them for their children, for their families? Uh, and, you know, I think naturally, um, people look to, uh, you know, information sources that are online. They look to the internet, they look to social media, they look to, um, you know, that's that's the first place a lot of people turn when they have a question uh, and, um, you know, they don't always get the answer that they want or they, they might not get the answer um, that's satisfactory to them. But it is the place that they turn. And um, so that was really the basis of the exploration was to say, OK, what does happen when they turn there? Um, both what happens today and what will happen tomorrow? You know, today, a lot of these systems um, are sort of. Um, they sort of have parlor tricks that they use, you know, they'll tell a joke or they'll say, I don't know about that. Or, you know, I think the answer around the dinner table from Alexa was, you know, you need to plug me back in when I die, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so people are thinking about it. There are, there are engineers on the other side, you know, thinking about these things um, and, and mostly trying to, to uh, defer uh, on them. But a core hypothesis of mine is that people will turn to, um, these systems uh, to find answers, and at least in part, will be influenced by what they find there. And maybe it would be helpful to back up a little bit, and we would just love to hear about the research that you actually did and how you um, used people, or how 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 you involved people in this uh, kind of experiment that you were doing with the different um, artificial assistants. Yeah, sure. Um, so. The research stimulus, I'll, I'll sort of kind of summarize it briefly. Um, it started with identifying 10 big questions, 10, 10 existential ontological questions that sort of are have been fairly consistent over the course of history. And so I looked to religious scholars, I looked to psychologists, I looked to historians um, and assembled sort of these 10 questions um, that sort of created the, the, the base, you know, things like what happens when you die, um, how do I find happiness? How do I know right from wrong? Why is there evil in the world? You know, all of these kinds of um, sort of existential type questions that everybody has. And then what I did is uh, I assembled a knowledge base of answers to these questions 
from lots of different perspectives, um, five religious perspectives and one secular or uh, like an atheist type of a perspective. And I, I assemble those answers from, um, from websites that claim to be uh, authoritative or official uh, for whether it's you know Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism and the like. Uh, and then um, those answers uh, had uh, vetted by religious officials um, that I that I reached out to, you know. So you know, priests and imams and gurus all took a look at at these answers and said, yeah, those are that's at least a, a good start. Um, and they these answers had to be sort of you know tweet like in length or spoken in one breath so that the technology could provide a relatively short uh, answer uh, to them. And then. Uh, I created a, a sort of, it's sort of a simulation of a, an artificial intelligence entity. So um, this, it's a relatively small, you know, corpus or database of information. And then um, I had different interfaces that would interact with that. Um, I had um, Google Home device, uh, an Amazon Alexa, uh, Siri. Uh, I had a, a, an SMS, like a text-based chatbot, uh, as well as a web page. Um, where people could interact with these different entities and the participants that, that participate, that, that were as part of this, this, uh, this research came from a variety of different backgrounds. And so, um, I had, uh, between five and seven, uh, people from who identified as Christians, uh, as, as, as Jewish people, as Muslims, uh, as Hindus, as Buddhists and, uh, non-religious people as well. And then we went through the list of questions as they, they, they would ask the questions of the devices, um, uh, of the technology, and they would sort of rate their, their, their experience or kind of their satisfaction with the answer. And then um, what was probably most interesting was, was an interview that followed this, um, this course of questions and answers uh, where we talked about how did this feel? Um, you know, what, are, what are your perspectives on these, these, uh, these questions and answers? And, um, you know, we talked about um, artificial intelligence and technology more broadly and sort of how people uh, feel about it. Um, but each of the participants, um, they got um, between like six and eight answers that were consistent with their stated affiliation. So if you were Christian, you maybe got seven or eight answers that were from a Christian orientation. And then the remaining answers you would get from different perspectives. And so a little bit, um, you know, I had, I had these variables in the experiment where, you know, what, what happens when you hear an answer from technology that isn't consistent with the thing that you believe. Uh, and, um, so we had some, some good, good discussions about that. And there were some other variables in there as well, like changing the gender of the voices in the, in the devices or, um, taking, um, information that was authoritative, like, uh, a sacred text, you know, maybe it, they were quotations from, the Quran or from the Bible or, uh, you know, from other uh, authoritative sources to see how that type of an answer uh, played as well. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what the experience was. It was definitely a, a simulation, a sort of a forecast of what um, what these devices might do in the future uh, if if allowed to try to answer these questions with the, the data that's available to them. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, um, in your conversations with these people, it sounds like you're really having a conversation about how much do people trust, you know, technology, maybe more so than me or a priest or other sources of authority. Uh, did they, was, was there, when they got answers that didn't really align with their 
you know, what was supposed to be like a correct answer. How did that affect what they believed? Did they often accept it or was there some challenge to it? How much do people trust their uh, artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We, um, there's been a lot, a lot of research done, a lot of written about human machine communication. And we, we mostly people take cues from human to human communication to understand human to machine communication. But there are a couple of key differences in that, uh, at least with, with my group of participants, the, the sort of the, the more, the more common thing was to defer to, or, or to trust the information was valid in some way that it was coming from some, it was trying to, to, to make meaning of why I might've gotten that answer, you know? So well, a little bit like reading a horoscope, it, there was this process of, of kind of, you know, thinking through like, well, hmm, I wonder, I don't know if I agree with that completely, but it isn't, it is interesting to me. I'm considering it, you know, there wasn't an immediate sort of uh, rejection uh, in most cases of the information that they got from these systems. And, and that's, um, that's really important. I think, you know, um, part of what is happening, I think, is that people are conditioned to, we, we are conditioned to listen to the, to, to what comes through technology. Like our, you know, what all the studies on attention engineering and dopamine release and all of these kinds of things, these, these are, this is information that we don't tend to look away from. And, um, and then we also tend to try to make meaning of the information that we're getting from machines um, in, a, in a way that is a little bit different. Is maybe we're slower to be confrontational with the machine. We're slower to, um, we're slower to reject in a way. And so for me, the takeaway was that um, there's, there was influence happening. There was, there was a consideration of different views um, that was going on. Uh, as well. I mean, I think another, another aspect of it too, that people sort of said in the interview afterward had to do with the willingness to, uh, or, or a, a higher level of comfort about asking questions of a machine than they might be in asking a person. So the social awkwardness of, of asking a, 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 like a really personal religious question or, or like an existential question, um, you know, doesn't exist with, uh, a private, you know, conversation with the machine. In fact, you know, it's, you know, ostensibly a, a conversation with a machine could be the most private conversation that you could have. And so, um, so I'm optimistic in terms of the ability for machines to, to sort of give people, the ability to ask what might otherwise seem to be socially awkward questions or stupid questions and get answers that might help them, um, if not inform their own position, understand the position of others a little bit better. That, that reminds me of um, the experiments with the ELISA robot uh, back in the 70s. And that, that ELISA effect was that people, it's not so much that people had this incredibly new trust in the machine, but that they distrust people who could understand um, and, and I, and I'm also struck by that, that meaning making, that humans are meaning making, uh, beings. And that once we get this, uh, input from artificial intelligence on these profound questions, we want to construe it and try to put it into context and, and, and see if we can understand. Yet, I just feel like so many people look at religious or spiritual beliefs 
as not just a part of their identity, but something that they that is purely individual that they created in an almost asocial context. Um, that leads me to thinking about how AI will influence religious belief in the future um, and whether we'll even notice. Um, do you, and, and a lot of your experiments was about what AI, how AI might interact with the religion in the future. What insights did this study provide for you in terms of perhaps the risks, but also the benefits of um, AI engaging with us in these questions? Yeah, I think the, the um, as I was just saying, just, I think there's a lot of potential for you know, good outcomes, better outcomes in terms of, of understanding, you know, um, different religious uh, and spiritual viewpoints. You know, some of the things that maybe cause tension, you know, between different groups does very often have to do with, with ignorance. And so I do think there's the ability for these systems to be very helpful for people. Um, you know, I think like with all technology, the motivation under it, the whether it's a business model or, you know, whatever those, that will, that will weigh heavily on the outcome here. So, you know, if, if attention engineering is applied and sort of the, 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 the sort of the, the fuel in the system is how long can we get people to interact and like, how do we keep them interacting with these systems? We know that, we know that, um, you know, sort of shock value is very important and, and, um, conspiracy is very important and tension is very important. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that could lead to a very unhealthy, uh, you know, sort of relationship with this technology. If, if, you know, where, where are we to apply today's advertising attention engineering models to religious information, um, without, any kind of additional thought, then I, I think we would be headed toward trying to emphasize the differences and emphasize um, the controversies and and emphasize the arguments and uh, and and so I do. Uh, that's that's a cautionary uh, tale for me. One thing that I find really interesting about this topic topic is I think that there's sort of this false dichotomy. Like people think that there's this fundamental conflict between religion and science or religion and technology and that technologists are fundamentally kind of agnostic and that there there isn't like this spiritual impulse behind it. But I think like the New York Times article pointed out some of the earliest AI researchers, they were devout followers of Christianity, Hinduism, uh, Judaism, and oftentimes would liken AI research and the work they were doing to sort of like these divine powers or divine knowledge. I, I would love to hear like any insights that you've gleaned about how this impulse to innovate is kind of wound up in or can be compared to our larger impulse to understand a higher power or just like our larger impulse to ascribe to a certain religion or spirituality. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with what you were saying about sort of just continually improving our understanding, you know, and I, and I think, um, in, in fact, you know, some, some of the, the early designers of AI, there's, there's often a, there's often a debate about whether, you know, the goal of artificial intelligence is to approximate human thought and, and sort of, you know, is that, is that the goal and is it a, is it a worthy goal and is it even achievable? And, um, you know, is there a divine element to humans that can never be, 
um, encapsulated in code uh, or by machines. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, I think there's, there's, there's an interest there, you know, mutual interest in both maybe the more scientific people as well as the religious people to see, you know, how close can we get or, or is, it, um, is, it, is it even possible? Um, I think, um, you know, you brought up Eliza and the Weizenbaum kind of work at that, you know, and I think what, what's, what's pretty interesting is that, um, you know, really the, the crux is around like, how do people feel when they interact with these, these systems and, and can the systems actually, uh, feel like, or appear or be, or represent, um, something greater and more powerful to humans. Um, you know, essentially, you know, the most basic sense, like in the, like the Turing test, like can a human be fooled? And, and, and certainly I think everybody agrees that yes, like we can't, like humans can be fooled, um, relatively easily. And so, you know, it moves from this perspective of, you know, whether, you know, is the machine going to, uh, you know, approach or surpass uh, human intellect um, or consciousness and into, uh, you know, whether, whether we're influenced by it. And so those are, those are, those are two questions that I sort of bounce back and forth on a lot in, in my dissertation and, and, and work through. Um, as far as, as like the, you know, the, the interest in the, in the goal, you know, I think, um, there is, there's definitely a, a, a metaphysical. So if you go back to like Sherry Turkle, for example, like her work clearly says that there's a meta, metaphysical aspect that we attribute to technology. And the more personal that technology, like her early work was about personal computers, the more we tend to ascribe this metaphysical capability to it. And then if you look to say Robert Garassi and you say, okay, well, what, what does that look like? You know, he has a bunch of theories about, well, it sort of depends on where you're coming from. And if you come from sort of a, a, a Western perspective, you tend to look at uh, metaphysical as a disembodied experience. If you come from a more Eastern perspective, it can be a more embodied uh, uh, perspective. And so, you know, he, he argues that, 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 you know, Westerners are more likely to think of uh, um, sort of a, a divine or a metaphysical presence in a disembodied voice, you know, coming out like sort of the, the voice coming from the clouds. Whereas, um, he, he talks about sort of the, the Japanese fascination with robots and sort of the, the love of, of that, that, that they can share between machine and human there. And so, but in, in, in the form of more of an embodied form of, uh, the metaphysical. And so, you know, I think, uh, I just find that, that fascinating to, to think about the motivations of the technologists, whether they, you know, what, where you start from, um, religiously or spiritually, and then kind of what you would create in the technology and sort of hope to achieve. Thank you for joining us for uh, this part one of our conversation with Shannon. We had a very long and interesting conversation with him. So stay tuned for part two coming out this Thursday. And the whole interview is already up on our Patreon. Um, 
And so uh, check that out and check out our Patreon where we'll be producing other content as well, uh, including an episode on the metaverse released on Friday. So we're really ramping up our content, obviously. Why? Because the metaverse is so prescient. And so we just felt like uh, we had to talk about it. So uh, thanks again. And we hope to see you either on our Patreon or on Thursday.